Great. Well, it's good to be with you this morning um, as we continue our series, uh, Hope and Holiness, uh, looking at the letters in the New Testament written um, by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, So today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, uh, looking at the subject of the day of the Lord. So now in doing this, uh, we're going to be grappling with beliefs about last things, uh, so what's known in theology as eschatology. Uh, And that's a subject and a word that, depending on your background, could elicit a range of reactions. Um, So before we begin, uh, I'd like to introduce you to three friends of mine. Um, So firstly, thank you, uh, we have nervous Nigel. Nigel gets anxious any time he hears the phrase, end times. Uh, He's just unsure how it will all work. What will it be like? What about friends and loved ones who don't know Jesus yet? How does eternal life work? What will our experience of reality be? There's mention of a great tribulation beforehand. That sounds uncomfortable. There are books and films about a rapture and people flying into the sky. What on earth is that all about? So Nigel is nervous about our Bible passage today. Maybe you know my friend, Nervous Nigel, or maybe you recognize some of the same things in yourself. Uh, So next up... We have Decoding Diane. So in contrast to Nigel, Decoding Diane loves talking about the end times. In fact, she rarely talks about anything else. She has all world events and current affairs lined up to charts she got off the internet about the respective books of Daniel and Revelation. She's profiled all the major world leaders as probable candidates for the Antichrist. Has the Rapture Index set as her homepage on her web browser. But perhaps most of all, She is very excited to see this flip chart here and can't wait to see what that's for. She's going to be disappointed. Okay, so (laughs) Diane loves decoding scripture and events to work out when precisely the world is going to end. So maybe you know my friend, Decoding Diane, or maybe you recognize some of the same things in yourself. And lastly, the third friend I'd like to introduce you to Uh, is bored Barbara. Barbara is wholly uninterested when it comes to talk about last things and eschatology. We can't know what it all means, so why bother? Can't we just live in the moment for now, do church together in the here and the now, not getting bogged down in arcane details? She can't be bothered with all that theological stuff about millennialism, futurism, idealism, dispensationalism. She doesn't know, and to be honest, just doesn't care. Barbara gets bored when conversation in her life group tends to consider these last things. Maybe you know my friend, bored Barbara. (laughs) Or maybe you recognize some of the same things in yourself. So we all bring a certain amount of assumptions, preconceptions, and sometimes, if we're honest, just baggage around this whole subject. So just before we dive into the text for today, uh, let's just get one or two things um, mapped out and have a selection of pens, so we'll see which one works. Right, so firstly, the Jewish view from the Old Testament, it was quite a simple view, and it had three main stages. Can you see this? Okay, if I'm, can you see it over there? I'll try and... Yeah. Um, so the Jewish view was that we have uh, the present age, And then during the, uh, the last days, or the latter days, uh, Messiah will come. 
and usher in uh, the age to come. So this is the, um, the present age, that's, that's where we are now, that's the, you know, full of oppression and suffering. Uh, and then the coming age, the age to come, uh, will be where the kingdom of God reigns supreme um, and injustice ceases. Can you see that over that side? Just, there we go. Uh, so this is what first century Jews were expecting when Jesus came. And this is what led them to ask questions like, uh, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And this framework um, remained present in Jewish thinking afterwards as well, uh, and can still today even be a stumbling block for Jewish people when Christians tell them that Messiah has come, it's Jesus. And they look around at the world and say, but where's the kingdom? We're still awaiting this age to come. We're still awaiting the time when God's kingdom will reign on earth. Um, So that's the Jewish view, based on a, a reading of the Old Testament. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that the reality is, yes, but there's more to it than that. There are developments in the New Testament. So we still have the present age. Can't spell present. Um, but then when Jesus, the Messiah, he, Jesus was the Messiah, just to clarify, he came and he was born, he lived a life, had a ministry, healed the sick, raised the dead, But then instead of leading a military conquest and kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem and ushering in the age to come like that, which is what the people were expecting of their Messiah, he instead was arrested, put to a false trial, beaten and mocked, and put to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross, which we know was as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. But to the disciples at the time, they were confused and disappointed. We had hoped, they said, that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel because they're still thinking like this one. But then on the third day, Jesus was resurrected from the dead in victory, and there's joy and hope once more that he will now restore the kingdom. But instead, Jesus tells them that he will send the Holy Spirit, they're to be his witnesses to the world and make disciples. He is building his church and will return. And then he ascends to heaven to the Father. And this is what was missing in Jewish thinking of the time, and still is. There are hints and pointers along the way in the Old Testament, but by and large, it's just not what uh, the Jewish people were expecting. Because in the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we have an overlap between the present age, which has continued, that's where we find ourselves now, um, and the age to come, which is a reality in principle in the heavenly realms. So Jesus is raised, ascended to heaven, and ushers in the age to come what was being expected, but only in principle in the heavenly realms for now, while the present age continues on earth. Right. Why is this important for us today? Because this overlap between the present age and the age to come that started with the resurrection of Jesus and continues today into the 21st century is the period of time the Bible refers to as the last days. So we're living now in the last days, not because of COVID or nuclear power, but because the last days began with the resurrection of Christ and will continue until they are concluded 
uh, with the return of Christ and the appearing of his presence. So that event, at a fixed point in time, will be the end of the present age, and then the age to come is ongoing and everlasting. Are you with me? Is this Great. Cool. Okay, we'll go with that. So as we turn to look at the passage for today, I'm going to start just by reading it through. It's the kind of Bible passage that probably raises more questions than it answers, um, but I think having an idea of the whole picture will help us work our way through. Um, So this is 1 Thessalonians uh, from chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you are, in fact, doing. So as we think of our priorities for this year as a church, uh, to build down, uh, to build up, and to build out, we're going to be focusing on building down this morning into strong foundations in order, as the passage says, to be able to build up and encourage one another, um, as it instructs us. We're going to be looking at uh, the what, the when, and the why of Jesus' return. And if that sounds familiar, it's because, yes, I absolutely pinched the idea uh, from Jenny's What, Who, and How sermon on the servant song in Isaiah 42 back in March, but don't tell her. Okay, so firstly, the what. So strong theological foundations are crucial for the health of any church, whether our church in York in 2022 or a first-century Macedonian church. Back in chapter 3, Paul said that he and his associates were praying earnestly that they may see the church face to face in order to supply what was lacking in their faith, which is a strange phrase, what's lacking in your faith. What he means that if you remember the story in Acts that Caleb took us through a few weeks ago, 
Um, shortly after the young church was first established in Thessalonica, some troublemakers came along and stirred up a riot. Uh, and then Paul and the others uh, then had to leave, or rather were sent away by the church for their own safety. Um, before they'd had the opportunity to instruct the church fully in the basic fundamentals of their faith. This is what was lacking. They hadn't had the opportunity to build down, using our language, into those strong foundations. And as a result of that, the church was shaken by some wrong beliefs, particularly here their beliefs about resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. So Paul sets to work in this letter to correct the wrong thinking. Brothers and sisters, he begins, we do not want you to be uninformed. And let's just stop there a minute, because this is important. Christianity isn't about secret knowledge for the few, or about blind faith, or mindless brainwashing or control. Paul here wants the church to be informed, to be taught, and to understand the truths of our faith. God wants his people to know him and to grow in that knowledge, which is why he gave us the Bible as a revelation of who he is and how we can relate to him and relate best to one another. We should be encouraged that we can do this. Anyway, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So apparently, the Thessalonian church were kind of eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. But in the meantime, while they were waiting, some of them had died. And those who were left were worried that their departed friends and loved ones were going to miss out when Christ appears. So Paul assures them by the Lord's word that there is no partiality shown to either the living or the dead. Jesus is judge of all. Jesus died and rose again. So remember we have this overlap between the present age and the age to come. We who are alive are here bodily in the present age, while those who have died in Christ, who died as Christian believers, are here in the top part with him. Paul says elsewhere that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then when Jesus returns, he will bring with him those who have died in him. So how does that work then? So verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. With a loud command, Jesus will raise the dead. We have an example of this on a smaller scale. Uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, standing outside the tomb and shouting out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out of the tomb. So too here, on a universal scale, Jesus will shout a loud command and the dead will be raised. Even the dead cannot help but obey the Lord in his glory. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the, Lord, uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, so if you've been around church for any length of time, you're probably familiar with the concept of a rapture of the church. If not, that's okay. But the word rapture comes from this verse, uh, from the Latin translation of what is in the NIV as caught up. And people are starting to shift awkwardly in their seats. That's really interesting. <laughs> uh, we who are left 
according to that Latin translation, we who are left will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Right, so we're moving into an area where there are a range of perfectly valid views, probably just in this room, but certainly across the church more widely. And that's okay. We don't have to have all of these details nailed down. But this is a really interesting verse. What does it mean to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air? There are some, many in fact, who see this as evidence that there will come a time when the church is snatched away or raptured up geographically into the air to be with Jesus. It's often suggested this will be secret and hidden, uh, and a whole chunk of humanity will just disappear around an unsuspecting world. There are a few verses from the Gospels and the book of Revelation that are used in support of the idea, uh, but this verse here that we're looking at in uh, Thessalonians is the only explicit mention of this being caught up or raptured to meet the Lord. And then within that view, there are in turn a range of views as to when this event will take place in history, with some saying the church will be raptured up ahead of time, Uh, to escape the judgment of God as his wrath is poured out on the earth, uh, with many seeing this as being a seven-year period. And then Jesus returns in glory and brings the raptured church with him. Others see this as being more like citizens of a city going out to meet a royal delegation and then accompanying them back into the city as the church is raptured up to Jesus uh, and he descends and they return to the earth with him. Again, maybe. We're not dealing with absolutes here. I'm not trying to do that. But my own view here, for what it's worth, is that that, the popular view of a rapture um, isn't really what Paul has in mind here. My belief is that this describes something more like a union and recreation of heaven and earth as the consummation of God's kingdom at the end of the present age. That the dead are raised and united to their souls that have been with the Lord, and then those who are alive are caught up together with them, and the coming age begins in earnest. So Paul here is borrowing Old Testament pictures and imagery from Moses and Daniel uh, as a vivid illustration of the same reality he describes elsewhere. Um, So for example, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15 from verse uh, 51. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And there's another mention of a trumpet there. And all the trumpets and fanfare and loud shouts and voices at the end make a hidden rapture, kind of unbeknownst to outsiders, seem unlikely to me as well. Uh, This is a public glorious event at the close of the history of the present age. Um, So you can have some interesting conversations in life group about that. Right, so we've looked at the what, the logistics and mechanics kind of of the appearing of Christ at the end of the age. So now let's consider the when. So from chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape, like a thief in the night. So in other words, unexpectedly, suddenly, and without warning. The peace and safety that Paul describes here would have been understood by the Thessalonian church uh, as the Pax Romana, so the peace of Rome, the peace and stability provided by and boasted of by the Roman Empire in this period. 
But the application is ongoing through every society and civilization since. Uh, but you, brothers and sisters, he said, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others, which is literally the rest, as in everyone who isn't a Christian and therefore isn't a child of the light. Let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. So let me take you back to December 2019. So I would have said my life in December 19 involved peace and safety. Not that everything was perfect, every, not that every day was great, but there was a general peace and safety in life. Work was steady, kids were settled, life was stable. So stable, in fact, that when Nancy looked up from reading the news and said to me, there's a new virus in China, my reaction was, hmm. <laughs> because I was asleep. Because I was asleep in the peace and safety of the modern-day Pax Romana. But we are not of the darkness, as Paul says. So we should not sleep as others do. We should be awake, alert, and aware of the reality of the spiritual battle going on around us. We are to be in the world, but not of the world, not drawn into the lull of the Pax Romana. It's always been a role of God's people to bring uh, a prophetic awakening to a sleepy world. The prophet Micah in the Old Testament knew this. As he was preaching and warning people of the coming judgment of God, he was criticized and opposed by the false prophets of the day. So this from uh, Micah chapter 2, for example. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things, this coming judgment. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Because we have a counter-message to the Pax Romana. The way things are is not the way things will remain. It's coming to an end, and there will be a judgment. And this, as God's people, this should energize us. This is good news and should fill us with hope. The way things are is not the way things will remain. This should cut across the world around us and the people around us who are comfortable in the world the way it is in a critical way. The way things are is not the way things will remain. God is bringing it to an end. So if I'm out somewhere with my children and I say, just five more minutes and we're going to go. If we're in a park or a playground, that's bad news, right? That's like, oh, no one to go. But if we're somewhere boring or unpleasant, said it once at a hospital appointment recently, that's great news. That, that's like, ah, the, the, there's light at the end of the tunnel here. We're not stuck here forever. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope guards our hearts and minds as we await the appearing of our Lord in glory, confident of what we are hoping for and assured about what we do not yet see. Okay, so we've looked at the what. Resurrection and life everlasting with the Lord at his appearing, and the when, unexpectedly, suddenly, and without warning. So now it's time to consider the why. Why care about any of this stuff? 
Why not just do church here and now, like bored Barbara, and not bother with what will come later? Because it's the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds, as we've said. The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. Paul sums up this passage by linking together our understanding of last things with our hope for salvation. And salvation is something we can all get excited about, right? For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are living or dead, we may live together with him. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath in the sudden destruction mentioned earlier, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is about God bringing to perfection at the appearing of Christ what he has begun in us now. It probably won't surprise you to know that we are in an unfinished state. Yes, we have been saved. In that Christ died for our sins, he bore the penalty for them. You've been made right with God. Yes, we are being saved. In that we are slowly and gradually being made holy and transformed into the image of Christ. But we are in an unfinished state. And we should not be satisfied with the way things are. God has more for us. To embrace these, ver- these verses that teach us of the end is to be given a glimpse of the way things will be. And being given a glimpse of the way things will be can help us make sense of the way things are. In the midst of all uh, Job's suffering and devastation in the Old Testament, in a moment of clarity, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. A glimpse of the end gives us hope to endure. Just five more minutes, kids, and we can go. Because Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive down here in the present age, or we die before his return and are up with him here, we will live with him and at the end of the age be caught up together and be with the Lord forever. So, nervous Nigel, the end times means the return of Christ, resurrection and always being with the Lord. This isn't something to worry about. We can trust God with the details. The work God has begun is being carried through to completion. We can live in confidence and assurance that God will finish his work in us. Decoding Diane, we are living in the last days, but we have been since the resurrection of Christ. The day of the Lord is coming just like a thief in the night, unexpectedly, suddenly, and without warning. Yes, we need to be alert and sober-minded, but with the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds. And bored Barbara, the theology of last things is about obtaining salvation. This should excite us and motivate us as our blessed hope. So let's encourage one another. Keep our eyes fixed on our Redeemer and eagerly wait for our Saviour to appear. So just to finish, can we just read, can I have the last slide please, Scott? 
Perfect, thank you. Can we just read these verses out loud together? Let's read this now. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great acts of salvation. We thank you that Jesus died for us so that we may live with him. We ask that you would help us to eagerly wait for him to appear for that glorious day when you will complete your work in us and renew creation for the coming age. Give us the strength to hold tightly to the truth you have revealed and the grace to trust you for the details of which we are unsure, secure in the knowledge that you are God and you are faithful to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.